Hey babe, welcome to the She Factor Podcast, a space where we believe empowered women empower women. We're here to inspire, encourage, and equip you to live your best life and find your purpose. Join me every week as we dish out real life tips and tricks on all things juicy, inspiring, and educational, but of course, never boring. I'm Tori Ganahl, a millennial woman on my own journey to She, and your host of the She Factor Podcast. Grab your favorite cocktail or Starbucks drink and settle in for real, raw, and hilarious conversations as we dive into what makes us as women unstoppable. Okay, ladies. So today's topic is a little bit on the heavier side, but one that's extremely important to address as so, so many women are dealing with it every single day. Domestic abuse and domestic violence. We have a very, very special guest today who's not only an advocate, but a survivor and someone who's fighting the good fight day in and day out to make this world a better place for women, their children, and obviously something that's so important here to us at She Factor, empowering women in their lives too. So welcome to the podcast, Marilee. I'm so, so happy to have you. And um, for all of you that that uh, don't know her out there, she's also a dear friend of mine and my mom's and um, your story is just incredible. So I want to give you the space to tell your story because only you can really do it justice. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey and how you've gotten to this point. Okay, uh, Tori, I actually have been involved for 30 years and I was a mother trying to protect my daughter. I was in a domestic violence marriage. I was emotionally, physically abused, stalked, and I had full custody of my daughter. And about the age of two and a half, he had limited visitation. And just an example, I um, took her to a visit with her father one day, and I dressed her all up. And I kid you not, she was the cutest, the funniest, the happiest little two-year-old you've ever seen. And her eyes danced, little half-moon-shaped eyes that just danced. People would stop me on the street to talk to her. On this particular day, I take her to her dad's, and I go to pick her up few hours later, maybe two and a half, three hours later, and I knock at the door and there's no answer. And I knock again, still no answer. He finally comes to the door and he goes back up the stairs and he brings my daughter down the stairs, covered in sweat, wet, nude, and limp in his arms. Her hair is matted to her head and I'm like, my gut pulls tight. This is long before we ever understood sexual abuse or believe that that would happen. I never would have believed he would have done something like that. But I, my gut pulled tight and I said, what the heck happened to her? And he said, she's sick. And I said, that's funny. She was fine a few hours ago. And our clothes were thrown over the living room floor. I got her dressed and got her out of there. Within two months of that time, uh, my daycare provider and my, do- my daughter disclosed sexual abuse to the daycare provider and to myself. I took her to a pediatrician And the pediatrician notified social services. And this is where my nightmare began. And this is where most of these women that are trying to protect their children nightmare begins. So I'm taking her in for a visit with her father. And you're in the meantime, these women are dealing with the abuse of their child. They're working a full-time job, the uh, emotional abuse in itself, just to know what's happening to your child and trying to protect them. And then fighting against a system that does not protect your children. I go in for a supervised visit, uh, for him to have a supervised visit at social services. And I'm looking through this little window, and I see he's the perfect father. These guys aren't your boogeyman's behind the tree or the stranger on the street. It's mostly familial. And he's educated, he's charming, he's good looking, and I'm thinking, oh my God, they're not going to see through this. Within moments, I'm met by a GAL, which is a guardian ad litem, the lawyer for the child. And she meets me with disdain. She's never met me before. And I'm thinking, this is strange. And I didn't know what a GAL was. That's the lawyer for the child. 
And she said, I have four things she wanted to discuss with me. I said, okay, I can handle this. Another mistake. I go into a room with the social workers and the father and the GAL. And I was interrogated like nothing I'd ever seen on TV. Why would your daughter continue to say this if you weren't coaching her? Well, because maybe it's going on. And the next statement would be, I'm going to have you do separation counseling. And, uh, separation counseling. I'm thinking, separation counseling? I just spent two and a half years trying to get away from this man. He abused me. He's abusing our daughter. And I'm thinking, this is ludicrous. But I don't say anything. I knew not to. The next statement was, um, I'll have you guys do a psychological evaluation. I said, good, maybe we'll get to the bottom of this. And she points her finger at my face and says, and maybe we'll find out about you. And then the day before, my daughter had been in therapy, and the therapist came out of the therapy session after several sessions with my daughter, and she had a report, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, yes, she is being abused, sexually abused, and has been exposed to sexual stimuli. And I'm thinking, well, I have this report. It was really, it was that knowing all you knew already but now it was just really knowing and so i um told her the gal in that meeting i said have you read dr baker's report and she says dr baker does not state there's any kind of abuse and you want to believe you're going crazy i mean everything is the opposite of what should be happening and so this is what happens to women all across the country. They're not allowed to bring the evidence into court. They're not allowed, the people that state that your child's being abused, the therapist, they pull them off the case. So it's all like a, a system, a systemic problem, but it's a system totally destroying our children's lives. So she then says to me, this is parental alienation syndrome. And I had never heard the term before. And I thought, parental alienation? I said, I've been over backwards for this man to be in her life. I had a great relationship with my own father, and I want her to have a chance to have the same. She said, this child's going into foster care. She had a foster care home lined up before I even walked in that morning. Bottom line, you never rip a child out from the primary care nurturing parent. We know today the brain trauma from that, the brain damage that happens from that. I got up and I walked into another room and I laid my head down on a desk and I really felt that my soul had been ripped out of me. I wanted to scream, but I knew not to. I was trying to hold it together. And the social worker comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder very coldly and says, you can go say goodbye to your daughter now. And I got up and I couldn't feel my legs and it was a gray mist around me. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm walk I just want to make sure I say goodbye to her. I'm walking down this hallway and they go, look at her. Look at her. She can't handle it. She can't say goodbye to her daughter. I just kind of put my arm out to the side and said, oh, yes, I can, because I wanted to make sure that my baby knew I was leaving her. I'd never left her before. I went in. I told her, honey, mommy has to go to work. She knew I wasn't going to work that day. We were planning to go roller skating. And she goes, mommy, because she never seen tears in my eyes or cry because I was trying to be strong for her through the whole thing. They had the police escort me out that day, not the abuser, the mom that's trying to protect her child done nothing wrong. I am probably all of these mothers are some of the best mothers you can imagine. And it was just, I couldn't believe what was going on. I drove a hundred miles an hour to Dr. Baker's office and I walked in, my makeup was thrown all over my face. And she said, what the heck happened to you? And I said, my God, they just took my baby from me. You know the truth. You fight for us. She said, oh, I had an idea. They do something like this. And I told them absolutely not. So this is my brief of how my case started. But I was in court for 10 years, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. I uh, ended up having to represent myself in the end because I was bankrupted by the courts. And through that time period, uh, until she was four and a half, more and more abuse came out. 
The more the abuse came out, the sexual abuse, whether it was police reports, doctor's reports, hospital reports, the top doctors in the state of Colorado from the Child Advocacy and Protection Team wrote a letter to my judge, please contact us concerning the sexual abuse of this child. He threw it out. I had seven judges and eight attorneys in that 10-year period. So I was in court not for a week at a time or a day at a time. I was in for weeks, months, and years. Uh, the one thing that is incredible is that by the time she was four and a half, she couldn't understand why nobody was protecting her. Can you imagine as a child, you're telling policemen, doctors, social workers, psychologists, family and friends, and even her own mother in her eyes let her down because she'd say to me, mommy, who are the good people? Who are the bad people? And you know, I couldn't really say anything to her. All I wanted to do was keep her as normal as I could and not talk about the abuse. Let her talk about it when she talks about it. So that's what I tell these moms out there that are going through it. Do not talk for the child ever. Do not repeat what the child says. Let that child, when they're a younger age like that, when, when a nurse or a doctor was asking me, well, what, what's your daughter saying? I said, no, ask my daughter. I left it up to my daughter to say, because if I said anything, they'd say, the mother said, so you couldn't really respond to anything. My daughter was very, very strong. At four and a half, uh, I'd been lobbying in Washington, D.C. I was done with the court system. I'd been doing everything in my power to protect her. So I began lobbying in Washington, D.C. Um, I testified before Congress. I ended up... Um, I, did, I got, had a lot of media coverage in my case. And I believe in the media, full force. I, I don't, you know, when you're in the middle of your case and you can't do anything, don't bring the media in. Wait till, when you lose, you don't have a chance of getting that child back. So you need the media. And the media needs to hear this. And society needs to hear this because this affects all of society. So it ends up, um, she's forced to go live with her dad at that point, uh, full-time. I get supervised visits with two therapists while I'm lobbying in Washington, D.C., have uh, take a 70-page document to a judge on a Monday morning with a docket full, leaving out all police reports, doctor's report, hospital reports, 35 witness reports, leaving it all out, and stating I had PAS. Now, let me explain what PAS is. Parental alienation syndrome started in the 80s with Dr. Richard Gardner. He self-published his books. He sent them to every court in the nation. He actually stated in those books, we all have some pedophilia within us, that it makes little girls and little boys better sexual partners, that we need to have more pity for the pedophile than scorn. So in his books, he's stating some pretty sick stuff, but his theory is debunked. It's not even approved by the American Psychiatric Association, APA. He has no scientific research to back anything he's saying. It's just his own beliefs. So in my regard, I believe the man was a pedophile. And even on when I went on CNN, CNN International News, they did an hour-long program on PAS. It was a terrific pro program. And I haven't seen anything since that was so well-made and, and did such a great job. But Richard Gardner was on that piece, and he was paid in my case. I actually put the checks that he wrote to the courts and to the GAL in my book. So this guy was making millions, um, and he even stated on that CNP CNN piece, uh, gel these moms, gag these moms. Guess what's been happening since? The moms have been being gelled and gagged. What a better way to silence them correct. Um, they were pushing to put me in jail and in my parental rights because I wouldn't quit fighting. Uh, the CNN piece, I had a gag order before I went on. I didn't care. I, the, you know, 
at that point, you can't care anymore because they're not going to do what's right. They're not going to right the wrong that they've been doing. It's a real sick behavior that's going on throughout the whole system. And it's judges lacking education. It's social workers. I'm not going to say it's all lack of education because there's a lot of other things going on, but they do need training. And that's what we're working at at Moms Fight Back. We want to train judges, lawyers, psychologists, any professionals that are involved in the system. We want to change the system. We want a, 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 a whole system where it's a separate court and we need legislation going. And we're working on that right now. But I just got back from England speaking on this issue with women are going through it now. Now, this started in the 80s due to parental alienation syndrome with Richard Gardner, who stabbed himself probably 10 years ago and eight times in the upper part of his chest. And his ideas are still out there. They've churned it not to use PAS because they know that it's debunked and they're not allowed to use it, but they changed it to parental alienation. Parental alienation, there are parents that alienate the other parent. But alienation, all these women losing their children because the father comes in and says they're being alienated, do you really think alienation is worse than raping a child? Do you really think alienation is a worse thing than abusing a child? Do you really think that the abuse that that abuser is doing is actually being allowed by them being able to use the alienation syndrome thing? So it's a, it's a nightmare what's going on out there. Well, I can't, one, thank you enough for telling your story because I think it's so, so important for especially young women to hear, um, you know, it's just not out there in our media. Like you don't see these things happening. And especially for, I think, young 20-somethings, you don't see a lot of this. And as we prepare our lives and plan our lives and create these lives we love, they can be ripped away from us so easily. And that's obviously what happened to you and you've been fighting your whole life for this. So First of all, thank you for fighting and thank you for continuing to share your story and continuing to support women. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's it's so frustrating and confusing and there's just so many different parts of this whole process that you've been through. And um, I, I don't know, I, I guess my next question for you is like, how did you sort through all of that? Like you didn't obviously, you weren't necessarily a lawyer going into this. Like you had no idea the, the battles that you were about to fight. And um, how did you prepare yourself for that? And I mean, I guess you can't really prepare yourself, but um, like, where do you even begin? You know, Tori, that's a great question. And I, I really want to take that back to the women that are going through this today. In my day, we didn't have the internet. So we didn't have the way to connect to what's going on out there, motions to file, what works in the court, what doesn't, what you're going to be up against. My book is an educational tool for that because it tells, it's a case study that tells the story and then it goes into the research and the legal. So if you're reading that, it'll say, they'll think, oh no, that couldn't happen. Then it says, go to addendum A, there's the police report, or there's the judge's order, or there's the doctor's report. So I backed everything up. Women today least have that to where, and when they know about domestic violence in, in my day, I didn't know what domestic, I thought domestic violence meant a woman had to be beaten to a pulp and almost killed before it was called domestic violence. I think people still think that. They do. And that's a sad part because there's emotional abuse. There's obviously the physical, there's course of control, financial. There's so many more avenues to what abuse is. And there's a whole 
women, young women, when I speak at colleges or um, conferences even, and the young women, the first thing I tell them, and I'm telling you now, all you young women out there, you make the mistake of being with a domestic violence abuser. You have the red flags today. They're out there everywhere, whether it's books, um, on the internet. You hear about it every day. My day, we didn't, but you do. And if you see that, any of those behaviors in a guy you're dating and the possibility that you may marry that guy, you run. Because if you don't, you will have a lifetime of abuse and so will your children. And that's why, I I mean, that really comes to the core of why I wanted you on the podcast and to talk about that because I think there's so many women out there who just don't, I think it's kind of this catch-22. I think that it's becoming more um, normal for society to talk about these, you know, the Me Too movement and sexual assault and domestic abuse. Like I think even in like the television shows these days, like it's becoming more common for women to talk about and it's coming up, but it's still not, I feel like women still don't know and they don't, they're getting stuck in these situations where, you know, it takes years to get out of a situation with a guy like this, especially once you're married and have a kid and like you go through that process. And like you said earlier, like they're, they're the perfect guys. Like they're the perfect husbands yeah, and, and fathers. So what are the biggest signs that you can give women to look out for in starting a new relationship in their 20s or whether it be before that or after that, like what are some of the initial signs that you look for in those abusive relationships? You know, I, I have to say um, when, a, when a guy gaslights you, and for those of you that don't know what that is, they turn everything around onto you. Their behavior is abusive to you, but they say, you made me do it. You caused me to act like that. They're, um, most of these guys, I think, um, which, which a lot of people don't understand are the personality traits of an abuser and the narcissist, the psychopath, the sociopath. I think you really need to understand those things and read about it so that you don't get caught up with one of these guys. Yeah. Um, they're very good. And so the red flags are everything, you know, from stalking to not being jealous, severely mm-hmm. jealous. I would watch for a guy like that because when they're severe, severely jealous, they start isolating you. And that isolation is part of the abuse. Um, young girls, they get in relationships and they think, this guy really loves me. He loves me so much. Really, those kind of guys are good at mimicking and making you believe that if they love you so much that they, you, they couldn't live without you. Really, it's the other way around. They're, they're, and they pick, I believe, they pick women that are really nice and maybe a little bit naive and want to believe the good in people. They know how to pick these women. We all can be like that when we're in love too. You know, yeah. I feel like we all kind of have that moment of, of vulnerability when we fall in love though. I think yeah. that's the tricky part. Yeah. And I think, I think that that is a vulnerability, but you know, if you see a guy that constantly is controlling every situation, they're very controlling. So a domestic violence abuser is so controlling and that's why it leads further because they always say, why doesn't the woman leave? Mm-hmm. Well, why does, the, why does the man continue to do what he does? Why is it not turned around to say, Let's, we're looking at women that don't leave? Well, I, have, you know, I just was on 7 News last week with a mom that begged the courts to protect her son and her for 18 months. And she goes into court continually. And uh, the judge just gave the dad another visitation, and he murdered the son. 
and he's 10 years old. That's a lifetime of trauma for her. For her. And, but, but that wasn't necessarily, he did that to get back at the mother. These men that are raping children, maybe, oh, they're not doing that because they want to get back at the mother. They're abusers. They're sexual abusers, predators. But what a better way to get back at a mother that leaves a man than to control her through her children and to abuse the children. So children are not safe in this whole um, dynamic that is going on. And education, I can't comprehend. A lot of times, some of these women are judges, the women judges. And I always think, gosh, she's a mother. And how can she possibly rule in that way? And it blows your mind that they come up with the same things. It is it's not even, how can you sit on the bench and hear this information and not understand? So those guys are great. They come in there, they're educated, they're, they're they the Ted Bundy's of the world. That's what oh it kind my of reminds gosh. me oh, of. You know, that is so funny. You said <laughs> that. I, I honestly, when I was really young, before I married him, I, I was on a flight and I was reading through a magazine and it was about Ted Bundy. And everything in there was my ex. And I thought, oh, my God. And I kept that. This shows you how deep down you know something. Mm -hmm. I kept that in my drawer by my bed in a book that I wrote in the whole time. And it's still there today. And that Ted Bundy article states to the fact that they will stop at nothing to win you. They've arrested that behavior at, at an age of two. And they're, they... Um, what was the other thing? Oh, it was something like, I wrote at the bottom of it, they're great in bed. But at the bottom of that article, I wrote, Marilee, which will you choose? Love or, you know, what, what I saw, I knew. But I couldn't prove anything of what, what he really was because he came across absolutely perfect, like a great dad. And I think that's why it, it, this is such a hard topic. And I guess my my question to you, like, the media, think even Ted Bundy, like the media that they just came out with a movie about him, um, Big Little Lies, and um, you know, they kind of depict domestic violence a little bit in that, that show as well. And I think they show her kind of internal struggle with kind of that piece of, I don't, like, you don't really know, and but you're also trying to protect your kids. But um, I, I guess for you, like, do you think they're doing a good job at, at portraying this in the media or do, is no. it, is it hurting your case as, as an activist in this space? Like is the media making it worse and harder for you? Is there, or is it making it easier because it's starting conversation? The media is not dealing with the fact that we had 18,000 women that were murdered in 2018 and that's murdered young girls, their, their spouses or their boyfriends murdered them. 18,000. Do you want to figure out how many were killed in Vietnam? This is bad. This is way out of control. No, the media is not handling it right. Yeah, they brought out the Me Too movement. That was great. They brought out Sandusky, who raped the boys. They brought out the Catholic priest. That's just the beginning, because the biggest crime of all is happening in our family courts, and they're not covering it. And I think it's people you know. Like I think a lot of these cases, it's like, these big media cases, it kind of seems a little bit still distant, but I think the people that hurt you the most are the people that are closest to you in your life right. in a lot of these situations. You Definitely. Know? But that's probably not getting covered by the, by the no, media. No, it's not. And the other side of it is, you know, sometimes the media twists it that like the guy uh, here in Colorado that just murdered uh, Kelsey, I can't think of her last name, but anyway, he just murdered her and she had a little baby and, and that he was having an affair and brought in the other woman to help 
clean up the mess or whatever. But, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to portray what these men really are from the beginning. That is the problem. It isn't about, you know, what did the woman do? Why didn't she leave? Why is she still with them? Why she deserved it? I mean, that is going back to old myths. I mean, those myths are so old. It's not about the vindictive ex-wife. It's not about her lying. Those are myths. You know what? We have statistics to prove that, Women do not lie, especially in cases like mine. There's only a 2%. So you're sending 98% of the children to live with their abusers. And you put these children in camps to separate them from their mothers. And we know by the ACE study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, was done by Dr. Vincent Folletti in the 80s. And that study in itself, if the public would take that on and understand what the ACE study is, whether you know you end up with a score of 10, it goes through as a child, you can divorce parent, were you abused, this, you know. All the different aspects that can yeah, lead to that. Yeah, and so all those things are covered. And if we dealt with the mental health of that and what those children are going through, we as a society could stop, it's billions of dollars as a cost of society. If people want to look at the money side of this and they don't want to deal with the emotional side, it's billions. And I, you can totally see that, I think, in kids these age too, like when this day and age. Um, I mean, even like my younger siblings watching, it's like the suicide rates have gone up so significantly in these schools and like mental health is is it's just not getting addressed the way it should. And I think that's where it starts. I mean, if these abusers could maybe, I don't know, I don't know if even therapy would help them. Cause I think I'm in your opinion, like, and in mine, I think it starts at their core, but mm-hmm. I mean, if there's things that they've had happen to them in their life that they can deal with early on, like there's maybe a slight chance that they could change in older age. I don't know. I'm sure there's a small percentage of them out there, but like, what is your opinion with that? Like, do you think we need to make more of a, a focus on mental health in kids? Like, would that help or? Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, we know what trauma does to the brain and to the body. You know, for children that have been abused, it affects the frontal lobe of your brain, the hippocampus. And and we know that the brain damage, That's it's not just they have a harder time in school, they have a harder time emotionally, they have to separate, you know, there's all kinds of things going on. So really it's trauma-based. Trauma-informed care is what needs to happen. Yeah. And yeah, I think that the one thing I want to see is these abusers don't get to be with these children. That's it. You know, you mm-hmm. abuse your child. We've got a thing where, and they're passing it in Europe right now, 50-50, you know. Yeah, 50-50 custody in courts looks great on paper, but that's with good parents. Right. You know? That's your typical, like, standard divorce situation where yeah, and where the parents care about their kids and they're not fighting necessarily. They're, they, even if they are fighting, they want to do what's best for their children. The cases I'm talking about are abuse cases, and those cases are not about the parents trying to do what's right. That's an abuser. And those 70% of those contested custody cases, these guys are abusers. And I'm saying guys, now let me tell you, I do know women abuse, and I know women can be horrible mothers as well. But look at the statistics. Who is doing the killing? Who is beating up who? It's not Mm -hmm. women beating up men. It's not women murder. It's not women raping men. It does happen. But let's look at the real figures. And then why not go after it in the right way? I'm tired and tired of saying for fathers' rights, they get billions of dollars through our government due to the Welfare Act that Clinton passed back in 94, I think it was, 
And that was really made up to help fathers coming out of prison to be able to have a family and keep the family together kind of thing. You do not keep a family together with an abusive person. That's just, that's right. it. And that money is being spent in a very wrong, wrong way. Even through foster care, what's happening in the system with social services and the foster care that's going on is way out of line. And I feel children are being trafficked all across the nation. And I feel like it's just one of those things where it's like slowly trickling out. Like there's some of this information out there, but it's not to the extent of like these stories that are happening within these families that are like your neighbors and your colleagues. And I do think that there is something to be said with what, like, what can you do as a bystander? Like, what can you do as a friend? How can you realize these things going on in your friends or your colleagues or your, you know, coworkers or I guess the same thing, um, your neighbors, like, have you, have you dealt with that at all? Like how to prepare people to kind of be a bystander in this situation and advocate? Um, that's where awareness and accountability come in. Yeah. And really if people aren't aware of this situation and they're blocked off from knowing what's going on and what I really dislike is somebody that will say to me, well, it's not happening in my family and they don't care. Believe me, with the ACE research and with all we know, with the trauma that's going on, you better care. You need to start caring what's going on around you. And it's just so, but I just find it amazing to hear people, I go, I don't want to hear it. Guess what? It's here. And you don't want to hear it. I don't like talking about this. I would have loved. Do people think you like going around and like talking to all these higher ups and, you know, the court system and fighting fighting the highest people in the land? Yeah, it goes all the way to the top in politics. And that's just like, we know, like the Epstein and all the involvement with all that. This isn't just with, you know, welfare people or Mm -hmm. people that don't have jobs or whatever, this goes to the top. And that is the problem. Even when we dealt with the women coming out about their producers, you know, it's at the top where this abuse starts and the control is at the top and, and they've gotten away with it for centuries really. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's about time that I think with the me too movement, I was like, and then fighting for equal rights. I'm totally a feminist, but I love men too. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying equal rights. We're fighting for equal rights as women. How are we equal? Take any of those women fighting for equal pay and to make more money. Well, you need the money to fight in the court system. But equal pay, equal this. Take your children and let's see how fast you fight for equal. Because that is the ultimate of abuse. The ultimate. Yeah, and I mean... There's just, I mean, even just looking at the statistics, even from a case of like what we're doing at Chief Factor in the workplace, like look at the statistics of women who aren't on the top, women who are missing the mark on those promotions, women who aren't, you know, aren't. We're so far from yeah, it still. And, and I, you know, it kills me inside when people say like, oh, well, you know, it's not an issue here or like we don't, we don't deal with that here. It's like, no, it's happening. Like it's happening at the very bottom and it's happening all the way up to the top. But the people at the top, you know, aren't seeing what's happening at the bottom. Maybe the people at the top who could make a difference aren't seeing what's happening on the bottom or maybe they are and they're not doing anything about it. It's just, it's, it's so frustrating because there's so, we have so far to go, but we're, it's almost 2020. Like who would have thought that we would still have this much work to do? Yeah. I think, I think about that often too, because I mean, when I figure I've been doing this for 30 years and it really is about women's rights, human rights, civil rights, um, 
the legality of what's going on. And women, you know, I mean, just standing up for other women. I really believe, like your she factor and the young women coming in now need to fight this with everything they've got. Mm-hmm. And they need to be aware and accountable for what's going on and, and, and hold the people that are in those positions accountable. I, I, it's got to stop somewhere. And, you know, I know other countries have it way worse than the U.S., obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, like India and the way the men are there. I mean, it's, it's horrific. But we have a voice here. We're in 2019, 2020. Mm-hmm. I, I had a rally at the Capitol in 1992 or four. I can't remember which. But I had, I had just lost my daughter. And I had been planning it with an attorney from New Jersey, John Pennington. And she... She did it because I was getting a lot of media coverage in my case. So she said, let's have this rally in Denver and bring more media attention to your case. And six months, I worked my butt off getting, you know, porta potties, speakers in the trees, sending out um, media, press releases. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you all the work I did. And week before that rally was to take place, I lost my daughter. And honestly, I don't know how I went through with it. I, I don't know how I functioned or made everything go the way I did. And, and I did everything she told me to do. She was the guru in all this. And she pretty much brought in the professionals, the senators, the congressmen, the musicians that were there were incredible. So it was a great grassroots effort. I haven't seen anything like it since. But I remember Jung getting on the Capitol steps. Now, she was a domestic violence survivor, and she was beaten one eye until she went blind in that eye. And then he started beating her other eye. And she sat on the Capitol steps of New Jersey with five kids begging for help. And nobody would help her. She ends up going to law school. And she gets her law degree. And she opens up a center for domestic violence. So it's all lawyers working for women that are domestically abused or whatever. And she kept getting calls from mothers like myself. And she thought they were crazy. This can't possibly be going on. Just like everybody even today does. This is 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so she starts studying it. She understood gender bias. She wrote briefs that went to Congress that were incredible to show what's going on. She stood on the Capitol steps that day. And she said, this is like the Civil Rights Act of the 60s. This is the movement of the 90s. And we're in 20." 20, really. And this is still going on. And I'll never forget her standing to the side and saying, you know, first we were taking a list of mothers at our center. Today we're changing that list and we're taking a list of judges. And the first judge on that list is going to be Judge Michael Beta, who has sentenced Marilee McLean's child, still makes me cry, to a lifetime of abuse. And that is exactly what it is. It's a lifetime of abuse. And all these mothers came in from every single state. We had, every state was covered that came in for this rally. And most of them, there were a couple that were on the run. One of them, she was darling. She she was um, like a cowgirl, but just really neat. Anyway, she, she said the FBI was after her, and she said she was hiding in the father's backyard on the ranch. They were looking all over the United States for her. <laughs> she was in, on his land. Um, there were mothers that just the, the, the actual grassroots and the th- stuff that came out from those women was unbelievable. And I remember I had to get up to speak. I wasn't planning a speech. I'd been speaking at DU Law School. And I hadn't really planned a speech because I was doing everything else. And she called me up to speak. And I thought, oh, my God, I didn't plan a speech for myself. <laughs> but I got up there, and I probably did the best speech I've ever, ever done. I don't probably. I know I did. But it was almost like 
it just flowed. And it was that my voice was so guttural and so strong that I believed God was speaking through me because I don't talk like that. I had back then <laughs> you I do more so than you think. <laughs> no, I mean, I had a soft voice. I was really sweet back then. And <laughs> oh, shush, you are now too. <laughs> and but I you weren't sweet to like you will fight, like yeah. you have a fighter in you. But, but I mean, it was, and I could hear myself and I'm thinking, who is that? <laughs> but I remember this guy getting on his knees and coming up and actually on his knees in front of me, he says, my God, you can speak. You've got to continue to speak. And I think the real reason I continued to the direction I did is because when I testified before Congress with 10 other mothers from across the nation, where we didn't have the internet, but we did get these 10 women together to testify. And I heard each and one of those stories and I thought I was alone in this. Mm-hmm. I thought I was isolated. And my family would even ask me, what are you doing wrong, Marilee? What are, you got to be doing something wrong. And you're just, I'm dumbfounded that it could continue to the degree that it did. And so they ended up, I forgot, I lost my place right there. Um, I was standing in front of the court and listening to other women's stories. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were, we were testifying before Congress. Mm-hmm. And I heard their stories. And it, it could have been me speaking. I mean, the stories are the same. They're like my book or case study. Some things might be a little different, but it's always the same outcome. That's what's huge. Mm-hmm. And I vowed that day to never, ever give up. And I haven't since. You definitely have not. And you're doing incredible work. And I guess my, my next question for you is, what can, what can women do? Like, what can they do to help you? How can we go out and fight this fight with you and um, really change the direction of this? I found, you know, like I speak at a battered mother's conference every year in Albany, New York, and sometimes it's at George Washington Law School. And I found that every time I speak there, women are coming completely depleted, really, financially, emotionally, mm-hmm. in every way. And they look at me as somebody that survived it. In all honesty, I'm still in trauma from it. In all honesty, yeah, I come across really strong, but I'm doing that for them because I want them to fight and I want them to believe they can get their children back. I got my child back. You will get your child back. You've got to stay at it. You can't, you can never give up. That's the problem. You can't give up. But I watched in my time, the women that were strong like myself, um, one committed suicide, uh, not the answer, you know, that's one of the worst. Uh, another one went in the underground, they didn't make it. They can't, you know, FBI brought them back and they went, and then the child goes to the father for good. I watched uh, another mother that spoke on the Capitol steps that day that I thought was really powerful. Um, she's been in bed since. She never got out of bed. So they get cancer, they get sick. That's another part of this for young women to know you're leading that kind of trauma in your life. You can expect to get some type of an illness you know, whether it's cancer, there's all kind. I see all of them, pretty much of them get, get sick. So we really, as a society, needs to come together. We talk about the children. It's huge. And obviously, I'm always for the children first. But these women are good, loving mothers, educated with good jobs. It doesn't matter what walk of life they're coming from, what socioeconomic status, what religion, what race, does not matter. And yet, they're losing their jobs. They're losing everything they own. You're taking women that would be great in the workforce are now taken out and they're ill. So it's, it's a huge problem with the women and the children. And it's a societal problem. It's systemic. How can, how can women 
Um, I know we talked a little bit about resources. Um, they, there are so many resources out there for women who are going through this. What are some of, obviously your book is an amazing one, but what are some other places where you turn to in this situation, especially maybe like in the early, early phases of it, like you're just realizing that you're in this situation, maybe you just got married or engaged and like you're connected to this person. Like, how do you start that process and how do you, um, where do you go before it gets too far? But then where do you go when it does get too far? Well, that's a great question. I think that at first, you know, you need to speak with a therapist that's in domestic violence that is an expert in that area that really understands domestic violence. A lot of these women aren't strong enough to make that move. And it's very scary for them because maybe financially or the possibility that the guy would murder them or hurt them worse. A lot of women go to get restraining orders, and a lot of times those restraining orders make it worse. They don't protect you. You get a restraining order. You think, okay, I'll be protected, and it's not enforced. Right. Then you have the, when, it, when you're in the midst of this and it's really bad, you need to be vocal. You need to let all the people around you know what's going on. You need to have a plan, and I mean a plan. So when you're in this for a while, Start socking money away if you can. Start getting a passport if you need to. Get your driver, get everything under order that you have a place to go. And I always, you know, it's, it's kind of sad. A lot of the women that go to the shelters, you know, for instance, they're in their home. This is a, a bad thing that does happen. They're in their home. They've got a beautiful home. Not, I mean, I'm just talking on the middle class side of it. This, this mm-hmm. happens all the way through. But So they have a nice home and everything, and they leave their home to go to a shelter. And once they're in a shelter, they lose their home. And then all of a sudden, if they go to court, they have no home for the child, so they can't get their children. It's not a long-term solution. It's not a long-term solution. All it does is protect them from being murdered during that time, which Mm -hmm. is huge, or whatever abuse they were going to get, and the children. But how do you... Um, if, if they go to a shelter and they're hiding out and then they're out of a shelter, they can't go back to their home. He has the home. And then if they end up in court over the domestic violence and a judge doesn't look at the domestic violence, in most of these cases, judges are not trained in domestic violence. They don't have a clue what domestic violence is. They have five hours. Colorado, right here, I went to the Commission of Judges. They have five hours of training they have to do a year. Five hours, and it doesn't have to be in domestic violence. They're on the bench for two years and rotate. A lot of the different Mm -hmm. counties will rotate. They're not trained. You have to have a separate court and heavy-duty training and not be trained by another judge. I got together with a a DU law professor who I used to speak at her classes, and then she ended up being president of a law school. She wrote an incredible book, and we went to the Commission of Judges, and I signed up for us to be able to train judges and we you know here she is a president of a university a law school and she's not able to train and i'm not able to train who better to train you than somebody that's lived it like yeah, i been did through it and 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 you know another judge isn't going to be able to train they they aren't capable of giving the kind of training that an actual advocate that's been through it or a woman that's been abused so they really need to see that side of it well and who's done all the research i mean like that's where I'm, you have spent 30 years researching this and talking to women and going through this process with them and doing it yourself. And, um, you know, it still amazes me that there's still such a systematic issue and mm-hmm. that there isn't better training and there isn't better education. Um, I actually have a guest who I'm having on the podcast soon who's who's doing this in Canada as well. She's not not necessarily just domestic violence, but more sexual assault. And 
not hers is about training the police force and right. the first responders to these sexual violence situations. And it's, it, it just amazes me that this has been happening for so long and there's still really no structure around it or there isn't. And even the policemen, you know, they get called to a domestic violence call. And I had a mom here in Colorado that was breastfeeding and then had another two or three year old son. And the husband was abusive to her and she called the police. And when the police came, he went to the door and scratched his own face. And it was like an inch long. I saw the picture an inch long and they put her in jail because today if you're called on a domestic violence call, it's whoever has physical evidence on them is the one that's protected. Well, these abusers, they you know they they aren't they they know not to make any physical right. deals. They know emotional abuse. I I believe I was physically abused, emotionally abused, all all of the other signs. But to me, the emotional abuse was the worst. And the emotional abuse of watching my child suffer was way worse than if you'd beaten me to death and left me in a field. Right. I really believe that. No, I even just, it's like every time I, I hear your story, I've heard it, you know, multiple times now, but every time I hear it, it's just still so chilling to me. And mostly for that, for that fact of like, it probably would have been easier for you to just, you know, get beaten to death with after everything you've been through. Like that sounds awful, but like, no, I mean, honestly, I did think of that at times um, because she was suffering so much and she was begging for help and she was crying out in the sleep. No, daddy, don't. Owie, owie, it's bad. Five and six times a night, she'd be arching her back off the bed in her sleep, dreaming, you know, the abuse. And that is the most painful thing to watch your child suffer like that and know she's hurting, just sobbing. And then she even said to me one time, she was like maybe three, she says, Mommy, are you going to get lost? And I said, No, no, I'm not going to get lost. Because, Mommy, 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 are you going to get lost? I said, No, honey, I'm not going to get lost. Why do you think I'm going to get lost? You're not going to get lost, are you, Mommy? So I finally realized he was telling her to stop talking your mama, you will get lost. And I did get lost. I got taken from her. So, you know, maybe he didn't kill me, but he made sure she lost her mommy. And so a lot of this, you know, like even in the state of Colorado, we have a, our best interest of the child statute. And I remember fighting for that legislation like crazy to get it passed that they had to look at child abuse and domestic violence first before mm -hmm. making a ruling in a case. Judges are not doing that. They have not looked at the the, they throw out the domestic violence. They throw out the child abuse. They don't. This is criminal behavior. A family court judge doesn't need to be doing this. It needs to be criminal. But you have to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt in criminal court. For instance, in my case, you could have, but the DA didn't prosecute. He said to me, Marilee, let's see what that lower court judge does. And if he takes your child away from you, we will step in. He never did step in. So these DAs have to prosecute. That's one of the right. things. And that's even happening on on the other side of the table with the with the sexual assault stuff. It's just they're not getting prosecuted in the first place. Yeah, they don't. it's just gone. Like there's your case. See ya. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's part of it. And I don't want to say it's a good old boy system because there's a lot of women in those those systems too. But um, is it? Patriarchy, patriarchy is it is paternal it like control? Is it or? male entitlement? Is it gender bias? Is it lack of education? It could be all of these. But what I do know is we need the good men to step forward. Mm -hmm. So 
talk more about that. Like how can men in our lives be allies? Like how can men like step up and fight for this too? Because I think that that's even been a topic of conversation. I feel like I've been having like, especially this week for some reason, I've had it multiple times. It's like, it's not just us. Like it's not just the women by ourselves. Like it's about the men too. Like not just the men that are out there that are causing all these issues. Like there's it's a lot the of men. Good men. There's good men out there. And like, how can these men help? Like, how can we identify those men? Cause it's hard to do. Like you said, like you just, you don't know sometimes mm-hmm. identify those men and, and how can they really be advocates and allies? Well, for us? I think the men need to stand up to anything where they see any type of abuse happening to a woman in their presence. I think the men there's an organization called NOMAS, and those are all men fighting men to do the right thing. So wow. that's a great organization. Um, but I think, you know, I find a lot of times if the woman remarries, that man is a victim of all this too. Mm-hmm. And he sees it first, totally. firsthand. And when he sees it firsthand, then he knows what's going on and he's fighting right alongside of her. It's so true. So, so that happens a lot. And so it can be the woman's boyfriend. It could be the man that she's now with. Those men are trying to help and they don't really know how much this is going on until they're in it. Yeah. I had a, uh, I went over to France. There was a mom, uh, Vicki Haig, and she was trying to protect her daughter. And I thought it was kind of strange because same situation. She was at a gas station and went to approach her daughter because she had supervised visits and wasn't allowed to approach her daughter just like I wasn't. And I remember I saw my daughter at a gas station and I went to approach her and he locked her in her car and rolled up the window so I couldn't even say hello to her. And I was just getting ready to go to a supervised visit. I was going to see her in a few minutes. But it's about control. And so her whole case got turned around. And, and because these women aren't allowed to see their children, and if they do try to see their children outside of that supervised visit, and I wasn't even trying, and I don't think she probably was either, but they're held in contempt. She ended up being put in prison for three years. And she was pregnant with another child, and she kept that baby in prison with her for three years. I met him in France, and darling, darling little girl, but she's never seen her daughter. She got out of prison, never, ever saw her daughter. And this did go to the top in England. This was in England, but she moved to France. It went all the way to the top. And it was the top politicians, the top parliament people involved in her. She was a horse racer, mind you, and a horse race trainer, and a top one at that. And she started all over. But she's out there fighting still. And so I just... I remember why I'm saying that is because my boyfriend went with me to meet her and he'd heard me talk. He's heard me speak. He's heard all this many, many times. But when we left with her talking to him about what she was going through, because these women will go on and on about their cases, he just walked down and goes, God, I get it. I get it. I mean, it was like a light bulb goes off Mm. after a while. Yeah. I feel like sometimes you just, when you're so deep in it, it's hard for you to see it from a different perspective, maybe. Um, I feel like I hear that a lot. Like you don't, you don't understand something somebody else is going through until you hear somebody else going through it. And you're like, wow, uh, that actually all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. Because he heard me speak lots of times, but when he heard her, it was like hearing me talk and he went, whoa, Mm -hmm. you know, so that is what it's going to take is, is really, um, I think women that are fighting for equal rights need to look at a different situation now and look at you can easily lose your children. This, you know, doesn't matter who you are, where you're coming from. I've seen them with millions. I had a mom that 
had millions right here in Colorado and lost her four kids. And I've seen them not have anything and lose. A lot of these women today are going pro se. And I tell them to go for it. Now, I don't say go pro se when you're in the beginning of your case and you're trying to get your child and trying to turn things around. But when they've lost all their money, they have nothing left, they have to use their voices. And that's what I tell them. You go pro se because a lot of these women are very intelligent and they know their case better than anyone. So they can file the right motions and they can go through and they have everything organized. I tell them, get a black binder, keep all your important documents in there. I mean, have all your ducks in a row. So you can go to a senator, you can go to a congressman, you can go to an attorney to ask them to represent you pro bono. You, you can go to the media. You have it together in a really concise, good way. Right. And that's what I did. And I think that's extremely important. And going pro se, I mean... I remember I had a federal judge here in Colorado who was retired and he was helping me file my motions and I was turning incredible work. I'm sure they were going, wow, how is she doing this? You know? And it was because I had him working with me to file these motions. There are people out there that can help you get through this. Yeah. I think it's so important too. Like once you start realizing the signs of things, like you said, like you prepare it, like you, you find, you put money away, you, you know, find a place to go. You get a passport if you need to, but you also prepare in the fact of like you document everything. Everything. That's the most important part of all this. And honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. That was how I was able to write my book because when my daughter turned two, when I realized what he was doing and now I was afraid he may kill me because if he can go this far to rape my daughter and what else will he do? Because he's Mm -hmm. already done horrific things to me. So I was very scared. I wrote that book for her because in case I didn't make it through this, I wanted her to have the truth. Your story. But I documented everything. And that's why I was able to do the book and why it flowed so well because I had everything documented. It's really important. Well, I want to I want to end on a happy note because you okay. are doing you are doing <laughs> such incredible work and you're um you're really changing and moving the needle and um so I want you to talk about hope a little bit. I mean like how you've obviously, I think, found the good in this situation by helping others. And there's Mm -hmm. not a lot of good in the situation that you were in. But I guess what hope can you give women who might be going through this, friends who might have somebody going through this, family members, um, or maybe even people who just want to help or maybe will go through this in the future? Like what, what is like the number one thing that you tell those women um, or the one glimmer of hope that you give them? I give them the hope that they can never give up and that to empower them to have the strength to keep going on. And honestly, you know, if you can help other women while you're going through this too and connect with other women that are going through this, that's an empowerment too. Mm-hmm. I, I believe they can do things to make that difference. Like what Mom's Fight Back is doing. What we did is we organized women that are going through this. And I feel... There's no better way to really move. There's lots of 501c3s out there, and they have their own agenda. And when I speak at that Battered Mothers Conference, I'll say we need an umbrella over all of us, and we all need to be doing the same thing because we're not being heard. So I believe with Moms Fight Back, having uh, women that have lived this life, who better to do legislation? Who better to get this information out there? I really, your mom started Moms Fight Back. She's really the CEO. And I really believe that I want the women to be running Moms Fight Back. I I don't want it to be an organization where it's a 501c3 and it's all about ego and it's all about one agenda. 
I think the women need to be a part of this. And I don't care how many other women they bring in, but it needs to go national. I agree. And I think it's all about the grassroots. I mean, like you were saying earlier, like, I just feel like there's nothing like that these days. Like there's not, it is hard to find like that good, just clean, active grassroots movement. Well, I think, Tori, this part of it is because uh, these women are being so beat up. Yeah. And and so it's hard for them to get out there and motivate and do what they do. But if they have an organization where they can... other women can do that, too. Yeah, and you, anybody. And men can do that. Men, you know, we know if, if you're looking at the whole... You're destroying generations and generations of children and women. So why not make it a better place to live? Why not mm-hmm. listen to the ACE study research? Why not do the positive to make the difference. Why not get to the media until they listen? I believe you can't stop. And that's the thing I tell women is you got to have the strength. The only way you're going to see that child or be with that child again is stay Mm level-headed, be empowered, and never give up. I love that. I think that's a great place to end. Um, As I think it takes a village, and especially in this fight, there's so many different things to to do, to fight Mm -hmm. it, to know, to research, to save the world. Like there is so many different aspects of this, but I think that this topic, like domestic abuse and domestic violence affects so many more people than the world thinks that it does. Oh, right. And even like, even looking at it, like you've been saying, like from the, the instance of like, look at all these children it's affecting. Like how many women out there listening to this right now have maybe been through this on the other side being the child who's gone through this? Like, Absolutely. And that's another thing we need to empower those children because who better to come out and say what happened to them than the children that went through this? Mm-hmm. So that's another side of that. Well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And um, if, if all of you out there listening haven't read your book please, please, please go read Marilee's book. It's amazing. And the work that she's doing is amazing. And um, if you are going through every, something we've talked about today or if you're about to or if you've even just been in any of those situations, like know that there's hope and there's research and um, there's people like Marilee out there who are really fighting for you. So um, we'll include some resources in our show notes too for you all, some of the stuff that Marilee's mentioned today and um, know that we at She Factor are on your side too and we're here and reach out to us if if you need anything or if this really affected you today too. So thank you, Marilee. Thank you, Tori, so much for having me. Yes. Really appreciate it. Looking for more than a weekly dose of She Factor? Find us on social media at The She Factor or head to our website, thesheefactor.com to keep up to date with all the trends on our blog and daily she email. Still want more? Subscribe on our app for access to live events near you, special offers from our brand partners, and lots of exciting tools to help you launch your life. Thanks for listening and see you next week.